Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. We are fired up. We just got back from a leadership conference, several of our leaders and, and those plugged into our, our ministries, our youth ministry, worship ministry, went to a conference uh, this past Wednesday and Thursday, and uh, we were all kind of commenting together after the first uh, session on Wednesday when we got to the break that we were so full with what God was pouring into us and revealing to us and showing us, we were shocked that there was more. Where we had another half a day and another full day the next day to get through. And so we, uh, we just all kind of came back on fire. And, and so I'm kind of nervous when that happens to me because that means God's usually going to mess something up in my life. And, and then I have to, like, trust him through that. And I think uh, today is going to be that day. So um, we are uh, in our week 12 of our series in the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. Our main verse is going to be in verse 10. Uh, I'm going to ask in advance, Belinda, if you would forgive me. I backstage just deleted my entire message, and we're just going to look at a couple of verses. So, so hang in with me. This can happen when you're flowing in the Spirit. And I just feel like God's presence is here. And He's speaking, and He's revealing, and He's, and he's moving. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that impacted me so much in this in this. Uh, this conference, and this is why we go, is because often you get in your own bubble, like your own relationship with God, your own time with God, and and uh, and you need time, especially as leaders, to get poured into with what God is speaking through other people. And uh, there was a, a worship leader there, I think, um, the, one of the last nights, who um, he's leading worship, and one of the things he said rang a chord with me. He said, you know, one of the struggles we have as a worship team is that we, we kind of get encouraged or discouraged by what everybody else is doing, you know, on, in, the, in the audience whenever we're leading worship. And, and so sometimes as you're looking about among the crowd, you try to maybe think of what can I do to get them excited? Like what can I do to get them engaged? What can I do to encourage them to participate in with what we're doing? Because often when, when you're putting your all into what you've been praying through and studying through and practicing through all week and you come in and it just feels like it's falling flat, that can be discouraging. So there's a struggle with worship leaders especially that when, when you're doing that, you don't seem to get the response you had in mind that you can be discouraged. But the thing that he said, he said, you know, when you're at home and a good friend or a family member comes over, you don't have to teach anyone on how to engage with them. You, you don't have to train somebody to get off their seat and to go welcome them at the door or say hi. You just automatically do it. Why? Because you're in the presence of somebody you love and you care about. And so the same should be true about the church of Jesus Christ. When two or more are gathered in his name, he's here. And so no one should have to teach us how to respond. No one should have to teach us how to welcome the king of kings. We should be ready to receive the Lord our God. And I just feel that spirit this morning that God is here. And so if you would with me, on the count of three, give God your greatest shout and praise that you can muster. 
right here, right now, as we welcome to the platform the one and only Jesus Christ. One, two, three. Come on. Praise God. Praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. We give you praise. Welcome. We welcome you. We welcome you. There's no greater privilege and honor than to know and be known by the God of all creation. To know that he walks with you, he talks with you, he's in you, and he's upon you. No greater privilege. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, this is our key verse today, and we're ending the talk at the Church of Philadelphia and like I said, I'm not quite sure where we're going here. I just ask you to hang tight. But I just got a sense from the time of prayer and our time of worship that the Lord wanted to redirect and really target something, maybe for someone specific or, or a group of us here today. But in Revelation 3.10, this is what Jesus promises this church. He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we welcome you here today. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence. And God, we give you the floor. God, I am your vessel. I'm your mouthpiece. Whatever it is you want to declare, God, it is your time. So we just rest in your presence this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you're about to do. We thank you for blessing our faith. Even the feeble attempts we take, the baby steps we take, even when we stumble, God, you're, you rejoice at the journey. And so, Lord, I just thank you for your love and your goodness today. That there is no fear in love, because perfect love casts out all fear. And we just receive that, we speak that today, God, and we say, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. A mind that understands and a heart ready to believe everything that you have for us today. And if you agree, all God's people said, amen, amen. So this verse is actually a very controversial verse. And we're not going to really get into the controversy today, but there are many different ideas, concepts, belief systems, understandings of how the end of the world is going to go down. I don't have time to unpack all the different viewpoints and, and the history behind all of that and all the arguments, though I would love to because I'm a geek like that, right? I would love it. If we could be here for the next six hours, that would make my day. I would love it, just talking about God's Word. You know, if, if you open the Bible and sometimes you just don't cry because of what you're reading, your heart's disconnected. There are times where I'm just listening and reading and seeing what God has done and how, how he's speaking to me through it. And I'm just in awe of this God of ours. But this verse, Revelation chapter 3 verse 10, is a verse commonly used to talk about, defend, describe a principle or a belief system about the end times that is called the tribulational rapture or the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And again, there are many different viewpoints on this. Some people believe it's a thing. Some people don't believe it's a thing. And, and we could go into all the different arguments. And I think that's good to do on your own personal time. You should know all the different viewpoints. You should know what people say, what people believe. You should know both sides. I heard somebody say one time, if you can't articulate the opposing side of an argument, you're not fit to speak into the discussion. 
And that's not just with Bible. That's with just about everything. If you can't speak about, if you can't defend the other side, you shouldn't be weighing in, right? So that's an admonition to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed because they can rightly divide the word of truth. We need to get in. We need to study. We need to discover. But here, what Jesus does, as as we've been tracking through the, the letters to the churches of Revelation, over and again we have a theme. And the theme is, is that there's some hard stuff coming, but if you hold on, don't give up, don't lose faith, then when you see me face to face, there are going to be some promises fulfilled. There are going to be some things that I'm going to do. And last week, it was such a beautiful week as we saw how God is not going to let any weapon formed against us prosper. Every accusing voice will be silenced, and when we are stand before the judge, he'll make those who opposed us, who are in the wrong, kneel and bow at our feet. What an amazing thing that we have in this God of ours. This promise is to a church who we also saw last week was going through some stuff. They were economically, spiritually, physically depressed. And so he's encouraging them, look, if you hold on, if you hold fast, if you endure, then I have a promise for you. And here's what he says. He says, you have kept my word about patient endurance. And I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And now many people who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, they will say, okay, here it is. There's the proof. We're going to be kept from the hour of trial. Which means when, when the crazy stuff in the book of Revelation comes out, you know, all the stuff they make movies about. You know, like the zombie apocalypse. You know, the meteors, the asteroids falling from the sky. All the stuff that, you know... Hollywood's, I, th- I think Hollywood owes the church some money. They're making some good profit off of God's word. You know. But there's, there's some stuff. When you read the book of Revelation, you're like, man, it's going to get crazy. You know. And so here's this verse. So the, the rapturists will say, okay, here's proof. We won't have to go through the tribulation. We get to escape it because of what he's saying to this church and, and we know that these letters aren't just for these individual churches. They're for the church for all time. And so they look at this verse and they say, see, we're, we're not going to have to be here. Because what's coming is going to be on all who are on the earth. And, and so it can't affect us because we won't be here because the rapture is going to happen. We're going to fly up into the air and be with Jesus. Our clothes are going to be folded neatly uh, on the sofa. And, and our, our cars are going to crash while we're driving because we don't know the day or the hour. And if the pilot's driving the plane and he goes, well, you're all in trouble. You know, it, it, it's just this, this thing that people believe. But what if I were to tell you this verse is not talking about the rapture of the church? When we read the scripture through a preconceived lens, we read things into the Bible that are not there. Scholars call this the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is when you let the scripture tell you what it means. Eisegesis is when you tell the scripture what it means. And we struggle with this all of the time. And and I'll give you firsthand testimony. I'll have conversations with people about any myriad of subjects. And they say, well, I think, well, I believe. 
But they don't say, well, the Bible says. I think God thinks this way. I believe this is true or this is not true. But they don't refer back to Scripture and say, this is what the Scripture says. Here's what it means, and this is why I think this way. We have gotten away from spiritual and scriptural authority. And so there are many things, especially when it comes to the prophecy and end times, we have to recognize that there are belief systems, but the beliefs aren't Scripture. They're interpretations of the Scripture. And we can get in trouble in many different lanes in this way. That's why the Scripture is our foundation. It's profitable for correction, instruction, reproof, that the man of God may be furnished in righteousness in every way. It's our foundation. And here, as he is speaking, the, the way we pull the rapture out of this is we just read Revelation 3.10, but we forget everything else around it. It's called proof texting. If you read one verse at a time, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. You can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. So when you're reading the Bible and you're doing study, the context is key. You need to read what's coming before it, what comes after it, all the other applicable verses on the subject in the Scripture, and even understand the context of what was in the mind of the writer at the time. You know, we have times where we'll say things, we'll be joking around with somebody, and we may say, I hate you. Do you know that the inflections in my voice determine whether or not that's a funny thing or a serious thing? How many of you get in trouble having discussions through text messaging? Come on. You thought you were sending a nice text, but the person's not speaking to you for three weeks. Stinking autocorrect. You know? Right? But this is common. Why? Because when we read without context, we can misinterpret. And right after Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, in verse 11, Jesus gives us a common theme that we've been reading throughout the rest of the Scripture, the rest of these letters. What does he say? He says, I'm coming soon. Not, I'm calling you out soon. Not, I'm going to make this easier for you soon. He says, I'm coming soon. What's his coming? It's his second coming. And so he says, hold fast to what you have so that no one can seize your crown. Now we've discovered through this study what that means when he says hold fast. That means don't turn away. Don't turn your back on Christ. Don't deny him. Stay true to the faith. Don't give in to false teachings, false beliefs, false doctrines. Don't, don't compromise your faith. Why? So no one seizes your crown. What's the crown? It's the crown of righteousness. That's what he's been saying all along. So he's saying here, I will keep you from the hour of trial coming on the whole world. There's a context to what he's saying. And, and, and we can read into these things. But beloved, when he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial, that word keep can also mean to protect, to sustain, to preserve. I will keep you, I will protect you, I'll preserve you through the hour of trial. That, that phrase, hour of trial, goes back to Daniel chapter 12. And in the Septuagint, it refers to the period of time before the second coming when the righteousness will be refined and the wickedness will be exposed. 
The time of the end is a time where Jesus is going to separate sheep from goats. And who's it going to come upon? All who dwell on the earth. All who dwell on the earth. Now, in this passage of Scripture, that word trial can also be translated as the word temptation. In Mark 14, 38, this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's arrested. As his disciples are sleeping on him. You remember that? He's, he's praying. He's sweating blood. He looks over and his entourage are snoring. Left him high and dry. So he goes over and he wakes him up. And what's he say? He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You may not enter into trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So here it's the same word. He's not talking about the end time tribulation. What's he talking about? He's talking about the stuff getting ready to happen. When the soldiers come and they arrest him, there's going to be a bit of temptation or trial. And what do they end up doing? They flee. And Peter denies him. He gets sifted. Why? The flesh is weak. The spirit's in it, but the flesh is weak. And so it's the same concept that the time that's coming on the end is not just a tribulation because stuff are happening, but it's a time of intention when God is going to refine and expose and reveal. And I think this is important to look at because Jesus promised us before he ascended into heaven, he said, in this life you'll have what? Trial and tribulation. But fear not, because I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. So the point here, and we can look at John 17, where he specifically says, for God not to take him out of the world, but to protect him from the evil one. We can look at many things that, that, that show us that we are going to endure some stuff. But what I think that we want to talk about, I think God's heart that he's placed on I mean, just in this moment, leading up to getting up here today, is that some of you are really in some stuff. You're struggling. You've got a battle. But you're praying the wrong thing. Just like the doctrine of the rapture says, man, when that trumpet sounds, I'm out of here. I don't have to endure all this stuff. You're going through some trial. And you're asking God to remove you from the circumstance. You're asking God to get you out of Dodge because I don't want to deal with it. But that's not God's intention. Now, there's a very popular passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And I bet you you've quoted it, but I've also bet you you misquoted it. And I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times, maybe more. But here's what it says. This is Paul to the church at Corinth. He says, no temptation has ever overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you're not going through anything new. There's nothing new under the sun. You're not alone. This ain't new. You're not the last one. You're not the first one. And he says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
The way we misquote this is we say, God never gives you anything more than you can handle. Bull. Beep. How many of you are going through some stuff or been through some stuff you didn't feel like you could handle it? Yeah. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God often gives us more than we can handle. Did Jesus get more than he can handle? You remember what it was said about Jesus? That he didn't think that his position in heaven was anything to cling to? He didn't think he was getting robbed by leaving the throne and coming down to the earth? But he submitted himself to the form of a servant? And he remained faithful even unto death, the death of the cross. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, you have kept my word about patient endurance, that word patient endurance comes from a Greek word that means a steadfast endurance, but it's also reflective of the virtue of martyrs. What's a martyr? It's a person who dies for their faith in Christ Jesus. And here he's saying, you have kept my word about patient endurance. You have kept the faith. You've stayed strong even to the point of death. And so I'll keep you from the hour of trial. See, context matters. We're all destined to go through some stuff. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You know, there are some things in my life that I have felt that were too much that I, for me to handle. Like the time I found out my dad had been cheating on my mom my first year of marriage. And not just that he was cheating, but that he was living an alternative lifestyle, had contracted HIV and hadn't told anybody for months. And now there's a strong possibility that my mom could have really have her life at risk. I had some words with God on that day. Or how about the time I was faced with the reality of my own sinfulness and how I was repeating similar circumstances in my own family and I was at risk losing my marriage and my children. I didn't feel like I could handle that. Or how about the time people close to me lost their lives. There are many things we go through in this life we feel like we can't handle it. But guess what? I'm still standing. And I have stories to tell. I have stories to tell. When Jesus says, I will give you a way of escape, here in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that doesn't mean I'm going to get you out of the circumstance. The word refers to giving you strength to withstand the circumstance so that it doesn't overcome you and you fail in it or that you give up through it. And I strongly believe that God's desire for us is to quit being cowards who run from problems, but to be mighty in the Lord, strong in the power of his might, wearing the armor of God, and standing firm against the enemy and his evil schemes. I think one of the things that defines the church in the modern day is our easy 
tendency to lay down and die when the enemy is coming against us. But that's not God's will. Jesus said, you're going to have many trials and tribulations, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And if he's overcome, that means we get to overcome. And the same spirit that raised him from the dead is the same spirit that lives in me. And the spirit in me is greater than any spirit that lives in the world. If God be for me, who can be against me? And I just want to encourage you that God is not going to remove you from your circumstance. But what he is going to do is he's going to sustain you through it. And he's going to mold you through it. And he's going to stretch you through it. He's going to teach you through it. He's going to strengthen you through it. And then on the other side, you have testimony. On the other side, you have a story to share. And this, I believe, is the point of what he's getting at in Revelation 3.10. Is he saying that I am going to give you what you need to hold fast so that you don't give up. And so that you enter in the blessings of my promises. And we will read later in Revelation, it says they overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. It's by the power of Christ and his blood and the testimony that we hold on to. And God wants to write a testimony with your life. And just for the next few moments, I just want to encourage you that even though we look at these things, it can be easy to become afraid. Be like, man, that means we're going to have to go through some stuff. Jesus went through some stuff. No servant is greater than their master. They've persecuted him. They're going to persecute us. The question is, is are you going to endure it? Are you going to stay faithful? But you know what? Our Lord is also very, very good. And God, in his word, has promised to be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. And Paul tells the church in the New Testament that we're not appointed to wrath. And when we look at the last part of Revelation, we see all these judgments beginning to rain down on the earth. Often they're called the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God is being poured down. And so many, many will say, well, if the wrath of God is being poured down, then how can we be here to endure that? If it's coming on all who dwell on the earth. I believe just as what Christ said. He said, I'm going to give you what you need to endure it. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to see to it that no one robs you of your crown. And there's two ways that I believe God is going to guard us, to shield us, to protect us in the last days. The first way, number one, is naturally. We modern American human beings have a different view of this life and death than what the early Christians did. Remember what Paul the Apostle said? I mean, Paul is one of my heroes in the faith. If you ever want to get out of a depression or a woe is me moment, go read Paul's rap sheet. Go read what Paul did for Christ. It will make you feel like a baby Christian who's done nothing. Beaten twice, left for dead, attempted murder, stranded, shipwrecked, ran out of town, persecuted. And among all of these things that he's done, he says, all of that stuff, it's garbage compared to what I have in Christ. And he says something so important. We've read it already in this series. He says, 
To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So for me to live while I'm still alive, I live for Christ. There's no greater adventure. There's no greater purpose. But to die is even better. To die is even better. Which means he was eager to die. We try to prolong our death in every way possible. But what did Jesus say? If you hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you're going to find it. Pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus isn't looking for suicidal followers. But he is looking for people who are so detached from the things of this world that the one thing they have in mind is their home in heaven. And how many people they're going to bring with them to the family reunion. So for Paul, to die is the greatest reward. In this life, we try to prolong death. We try to avoid death. We don't want to think about death. As a matter of fact, we're so overcome with the thought, we, we're despondent even in the moments when loved ones pass away. And I know there's a grieving process. There's a sorrow that happens. But do you realize Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, he said, look, they're just asleep. One day they're going to rise from the dead. And we're going to be together forever. And we'll never be separated. This isn't permanent. This is just a moment in a blip of time. There's something on the other side that surpasses anything we could hold on to in this life. And in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 1, here's what the Lord says to the prophet Isaiah about a way he protects us from hardship, from calamity. It says, good people pass away. The godly often die before their time, but no one seems to care or wonder why. No one seems to understand that God is protecting them from the evil to come. You realize some of the greatest mercy God can have on someone's life is to call them home. It's to call them home. I often talk to folks about how you want to go, and you know, we all are like, well, I don't want to die in a fire, or I don't want to drown, or I don't want to, you know, we all want to just die at peace in our beds, right? Yes, God, right? Let, let's just, let's go that way. But even so, when we enter eternity, we're not even going to remember it. We're not even going to realize it. We get so worked up and afraid about the transition that it quibbles our faith and stunts our, our ability to follow Christ. But he says, look, death, it's not a bad thing for a believer. It's the best thing. That's how the martyrs of old read Hebrews chapter 11. The unnamed heroes of the faith who were sawed in half and fed to the lions. Read the Stories and accounts of the martyrs who were lit as candles in the Roman Colosseum to light the games as others were ripped apart in the games. Read about modern martyrs today who just by picking up a dirty Bible knocked out of their hands by a soldier were then killed because of their faith in Christ. There are more persecuted believers today than in Bible times. You think they want to come back? Ain't no way. 
do you think they're ready to come back with Jesus? Oh, yeah. We need to change our thinking about what we're afraid of and what we're looking forward to. Paul says, don't live like citizens on earth. Live like citizens of heaven. Heaven is our home. Heaven's wherever Jesus is. That's why we gather for worship on Sundays, because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is there's freedom, right? There's joy in the presence of the Lord. We gather because this is home. This is a bit of heaven. But one day, it's going to be for all eternity. Recently, I was preaching a funeral, and I used to verse out of Revelation, and we're not going to look at it this morning, but it says that God will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no more sorrow, no more shame, no more pain, for death has gone away. You know what I used to think? Maybe this is just me. I used to think that meant that when we get to heaven and we see God's glory, we're going to be reminded of all the stuff we did wrong and how we messed up, and that's just going to bring tears to our eyes, or all the things we didn't do and all the things that weren't right and we're just going to be, like, sorrowful because of God's perfection, his righteousness and holiness, and all the ways that we didn't measure up while we were alive. That's how I used to think. But when I reread that passage, you know what I understand now? That Paul says that when we see Christ, we will see him as he is. Face to face. In the Old Testament, when Moses wanted to see God, he said, God, show me your glory. What's God do? He hides him in a rock and passes by and only lets him see him from the backside. And it's hilarious because even God's booty is glorious. <laughs> you get to see the glory. It's glorious. But why, why did he only show him from the back? Because if he saw him face to face, it'd vaporize him. Too intense. So he had to shield his glory. So he didn't even get to see the full thing. But the scripture says when we get to heaven, when we stand before Christ, we're going to see him face to face. The fullness of God. The fullness of his righteousness. The fullness of his glory. The fullness of his love. The fullness of his holiness. We'll see into the face of God forever and ever and ever. Why does he wipe the tears from our eyes? Because we're so overwhelmed with the goodness and glory of almighty God. That's what we have to look forward to. That's why this life is depressing, because it's nothing compared to what's awaiting for us in heaven. For me to live is Christ, but to die is even better. So what are we living for? What are we living for? The Lord has promised to protect us, and in death, it's to shield us from the evil to come. But the second way he protects us is supernaturally. We have a supernatural God. He's not limited by the laws of physics, by time. He's not limited in our understanding or our thinking. Matter of fact, Paul says he is exceedingly and abundantly able to do beyond what we could ask or think. I can think pretty big, but our God is greater than that. Our God is beyond that. So the minute we think we have God figured out, guess what? You ain't even close. Not even close. There's always more to discover, always more to discern. 
And the second way that he's going to protect us is supernaturally. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, gives a description of biblical events and how God intervened, raining down judgment, but also rescuing the righteous. In verse 5 it says, And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. You see, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their temptations, their trials, their tribulations, even while keeping the wicked under punishment for the day of judgment. When God rained down the plagues in Egypt, he cursed the Egyptians while he blessed the Israelites. When God led Noah into the ark, they were still there. They saw the destruction but they were protected in the midst of it. When God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family were rescued by angelic intervention. All those that they mentioned and those that we see, God never removed them from the destruction. They saw the destruction. It just didn't touch them. Because God has great aim God has great aim. So yes, the enemy's coming after us with a sword. He's coming after us with economic hardship. He's coming after us with the birth pains and the persecution. But when God rains down his judgment, we're going to be okay. Because the Lord is on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? So we don't have to be afraid of what is to come. Because he said, when you see these things begin, look up. Your redemption is close. The day of salvation is coming near. Every day we get closer to the fulfillment of our greatest joys and our greatest hope. And beloved, I just want to encourage you. If you're struggling, you're going through a time of trial and tribulation, don't try to escape it. Ask God for strength to endure it. Because the, on the other side, you will be a different person. The time of the tribulation is meant to refine, to reveal who is his and who isn't. And that's what God does through trial and tribulation in our lives. It prunes us. It refines us. It leads us to become more and more like him. It's what scholars call the sanctification process. You become sanctified through the trials and tribulations of your faith. And you might ask, well, why does God need the church to go through that period of time? Well, it's because we have work to do. We have work to do. What did he tell us before he left? He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all the things I've commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. God, through Christ, has given us as disciples, a job to do, and that is to tell the world about the king who is coming.
to lead people into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, to find their relationship in him. God's not going to remove you through the trial because he had work for you to do in it. He has things for you to learn through it. And just as we're going to be here to testify, to, to proclaim the gospel, I believe that God is conditioning us now for that moment. Because we have work to do right now. When people are waiting for the rapture, you know what is my experience personally? I spend so much time trying to figure out the date and the time. So much effort in trying to figure out the signs. And I spend very little time telling people about the way they can be saved. If we put as much effort into sharing the gospel with people who need to be saved, rather than trying to figure out when the train's coming to take us out of here, our communities would be different. And I just think that God in this time wants to call us back to our first love, our first work. He has work for you to do. He has someone for you to reach. And your Jerusalem is your backyard. Until every member of your family is a child of God, you're not done. Your Judea is your neighborhood. Until every neighbor in your community is going to heaven as a child of God, your work isn't done. Samaria, it's your community. It's your place of work. Until every person in your workplace is on their way to heaven, your work isn't done. And with the other parts of the earth, that's the rest of the state, the rest of the nation, from sea to shining sea, from coast to coast, from up, from down, from left to right, north, south, east, west. God has given us a work, and until all seven billion people on the planet are on their way to heaven, our work isn't done. We have a call, we have a commission, and we have a mission. And we can spend our time looking at facts and figures and trying to figure out when he's coming. Or we can just tell someone he's coming. We can look at all of the signs of the times of the end. We can look at all of our struggles and our problems and say, God, just get me out. Just get me out. Or we can say, God, what do you want me to learn, do, and accomplish while I'm in it? While I'm here. I just believe God has planted us in some really significant ways. There's some of you, you go to the same coffee shop every day. Do you know the barista's name? And have you invited them to church? Some of you go to the same grocery store every week, and you see the same tellers. Do you know their name? Do you know if they're going to heaven? Do you know if they have a church? Do they know their love? We have so much to do, and we have very little time to do it, because every day we get closer and closer and closer to the time Jesus is coming back, and when he does, it's too late. You've made your decision. And I think God has an incredible opportunity for us to see a revival unlike we've ever seen before, when the people of God capture his heart and we recognize that he's left us here because we have a great work to do.
Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes and just for this moment as the team comes forward and get ready to have our prophetic ministry. We don't have to fear what's coming because we have a promise. God will be with us and the Lord will protect us. Some of us will be graced to get to go home before it happens. Others of us will have the strength to endure it, to shine brightly when the days of darkness come. And for the next few moments, if, you're, if you've been the one asking for the escape, if you're the one asking, God, just get me out of this thing. Just as we've been singing today and just this, this spirit, I think God is calling you back to spiritual endurance. Back to a heart that says, for me to live is Christ. Not my will, but yours be done. I may not like it, but I'm going to trust you through it. And God, don't let me focus on my woes and my worries. God, let me focus on the King of kings, the author and the finisher of faith. As we strip off every weight that slows us down and every sin that besets us. God, help me see my life with purpose. Help me see the people in my life as my mission. Don't let me get distracted by what has come into my life or what is coming on the earth. But let me stay focused in the gospel of Christ. Let me patiently endure. Help me stand strong in the day of evil and in the mighty power of God. God, I just pray this over our church. Lord, as we are seeing what you've revealed for the time of the end, God, that we wouldn't be filled with fear, but our faith would rise, knowing that we have but little time, but this time is precious because there's people in our lives that are precious to you. And I pray, God, that we would wake up with new fervor, with new zeal to be about the Father's business, to be light in darkness. And I do pray, God, for comfort for those who are in the midst of a struggle. Maybe it's a marriage problem, a relational issue, those that are dealing with a health crisis, God, whatever the case is, God, I do pray for your comfort, your peace, and your supernatural breakthrough power to come and, and just bring a shift right now. But God, I pray that we'd be strengthened through not trying to escape and avoid. That we would grow mighty, that we would grow strong, that we would grow faithful, Lord, and that through our testimonies, God, we would tear down the strongholds that the enemy has erected in our families and in our communities, God, and that we would shine bright for the gospel. We're thankful, Jesus, that one day we will see you face to face. We'll no longer have blinders on. We'll no longer have anything that is in the way of experiencing the fullness of your glory. And I pray, God, that our hearts would connect with that reality. That every day we'd wake up and realize you're coming. We're closer and you're coming. One day. Soon. And that would steer the course of our lives. And I pray, God, that Vertical Life Church is a place where Jesus' name is always glorified. The gospel is always preached. 
the Spirit is always moving. God's people are always praising. And that you'd fill this place with people whose hearts are on fire for the kingdom of God. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart that understands and a mind that believes everything you've spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. at Vertical Life Church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.cb forward slash give. Thank you.